0: The crowd came together again, so that Jesus and his companions could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property Without first tying up the strong man, then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty and of eternal sin. For they had said, "'He has an unclean spirit,' Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, "'Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you.' And he replied, "'Who are my mother and my brothers?' And looking at those who sat around him, he said, "'Here are my mother and my brothers.' whoever does the will of god is my brother and sister and mother
1: how do we know when a popular music popular movement rather is a good thing i don't know about you but while i suspected he might come to power i still viewed with complete bafflement the widespread support for donald trump By large sections of the American evangelical church. I could partially explain it away because of his approach to abortion, but when the Capitol was stormed and there still remained a largely deafening silence from the church leaders who supported him, I really then did scratch my head. How could they not see But as I mentioned last week, people can have very different perspectives on reality. So how do we know that our perspective on reality is congruent with God's perspective on the world? Now, I recently sat down to watch the film Amazing Grace. Now, not the Aretha Franklin one, which I can also recommend, um, but the one about William Wilberforce's work, Uh, to abolish the slave trade. I'm ashamed to say that it was the first time I'd watched the film, but I can heartily recommend it. What seemed so shocking was that it took so long for such a committed, talented man like Wilberforce, combined with a great team supporting him, to get that bill through Parliament Now, it wasn't so surprising that those with a vested interest fought hard to hang on to their fortunes that rested on this evil trade and the power that went with it. But they were able to do that because of the many thousands more who looked the other way, who enjoyed sugar in their tea or the myriad other benefits that came their way. Through the blood and suffering and death of others. Wilberforce was ultimately involved in a confrontation with evil. And it wasn't going to go away politely. He was involved in that confrontation because his Christian faith had given him a vision a vision of the kingdom of God as being something that's not all about pie in the sky when you die but something to be built right here, right now. It was an understanding formed through the reading of passages like the one we've heard today. Now, if you've ever read Mark's gospel in one sitting or heard it read, you could be forgiven for feeling rather breathless. This passage we've just heard is only three chapters in and already Jesus is being followed everywhere he goes by large crowds of people. He's also already made bitter enemies out of some of the local clergy. Perhaps, like some of the crowd at the Capitol earlier this year, maybe some of the people who followed Jesus about weren't necessarily supporters, but were just hoping to be in on some action. They might not have been bothered too much, whether they got to see a healing or an argument. But others in the crowd were definitely disciples. And they would have believed they were following Jesus out of their conviction. Now, some of those were one of the 12, the close knit group who would follow Jesus for the rest of his ministry. In this passage, Jesus has gone to his home. And even there, the crowd is so big that his family are starting to get the hump. I'm sure the crowds of press camped outside Dominic Cummings' house a while back didn't just annoy him, but also his neighbours. So perhaps Jesus' family were worried what people thought of their celebrity son what it might mean for their relationships with their next-door neighbors. Perhaps they thought that Jesus' healing and teaching was like a kind of day job that he could leave behind at the end of the day and come home and settle down with his pipe and slippers. So I can't imagine they were terribly impressed by this great, noisy, messy crowd invading their personal space. They might even have harbored fears that those experts from Jerusalem were right, that Jesus had thoroughly lost the plot. I mean, why would anybody in their right minds want such a fuss? We could easily forgive their concerns. After all, it wasn't just affecting Jesus, but also their lives. But the scribes? Well, their response is more sinister. They're not bewildered and overwhelmed, they're just appalled. Like the members of the Houses of Parliament who steadfastly resisted Wilberforce, they're doing so because they're afraid of the threat to the current order. They can't allow all these huge crowds of people to believe in Jesus and perhaps infect others with this belief because Jesus isn't singing from their hymn sheet. He's made it perfectly clear he doesn't follow their rules, and the scribes know it. He can't be controlled by them. Perhaps they're not just thinking of their own power, prestige, and pockets. Perhaps the reason behind their their surprise and shock and animosity is because they're genuinely devoted students of Scripture, shocked at what they've heard about Jesus forgiving sins and healing people on the Sabbath, because working on the Sabbath is completely forgi- forbidden in Scripture. That's the clear word, so Jesus must be wrong, whatever the crowds think, however commendable his healings appear to be. They see Jesus' power. And they know only two sources of such power, God or the devil. And it can't possibly come from God, they argue, because God could only work according to the scripture. So it must come from the other side. Now, Jesus' answer to them is not just to look at the theory of God, but also at the reality. The simple fact of the matter is that every single thing Jesus has done is good. It's resulted in the restoration of God's children. Restoration not just in body and soul and mind, but back to their communities. Everywhere Jesus goes, madness, evil and sickness are banished. The voices of the demon-possessed call out to Jesus through the first chapters of Mark. They call out in fear and in longing. They call out because they know. They can recognize where this power comes from. It's a power alien to the small, mad, dark force that tries to control them. But it isn't strong enough to blind them to God's power living in Jesus. In another gospel, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus begins his public ministry by reading out his mission statement in the local synagogue. He gives them, if you like, um, the Pearl and Dean of his ministry, a trailer advertising what he's about to do. Good news to the poor, captives being released, the blind seeing and the oppressed going free. But here in Mark's gospel, Jesus simply does it. And just because he didn't give scripture and verse, it doesn't mean that those who've studied God's word shouldn't be able to recognize God at work when they see it. As Jesus spells out to them, evil doesn't work against itself. Can't you see that this is the strong, liberating might of God coming to put an end to all captivity? How dare you confuse the action of God to free his people with the action of the enslaving enemy? It's this which Jesus says is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's the willingness to confuse God's living, liberating spirit with the death dealing, imprisoning spirit of evil. You can't confuse them by accident. You can only do it if you willfully reject God and prefer to to be bound yourself and see others in chains than to accept God's redemption in Christ. Now there have sadly been Christians down the ages tormented with the fear that they have committed the unforgivable sin when in reality the mere fact that they're worried about it is proof positive that they haven't. But the story of Wilberforce and slavery makes it clear that the process of getting people to have eyes for the kingdom is not always immediate. And we all know that changing our minds about something can take us time. So perhaps... All we can do is to ask God to open our eyes as we study his word so we can see it as he does, to discern whether a particular popular movement is his work or not, to allow God to break our hearts for what breaks his to find out what he wants us to do to build the kingdom. I visited America a few years back, and I wanted to visit one of the plantation houses, partly to see, get a glimpse of some of the evils of the slave trade, and it was a rather bizarre experience. They had this beautiful plantation house, as you might imagine, with lovely antiques and beautiful decorations, filled with family portraits. And then you had the plantation itself. And you could choose to go on an optional tour to find out about what slavery was like there. Or you could just visit the plantation house. And having been on the tour, going into the plantation house was a rather bizarre experience because I met there the same sort of people that you meet in every National Trust house, people who love the antiques and who um, are very keen to tell you about the family who lived here. And the current um, furore about the National Trust wanting to um, talk about colonialism and slavery and the impact on the houses, to my mind, They need to be doing something like this plantation wasn't doing all that well. I don't think there's any difficulty in my mind to say these are the family who lived here. And unfortunately, this is how they got their money. But at the same time, this is a marvellous opportunity that these houses have to say, and did you know that that phone in your pocket has minerals in it that were mined by child slaves? for the National Trust or or English Heritage to use this as an opportunity to raise awareness about slavery that's happening right here, right now in this country. We need to find out what breaks God's heart. We need to learn about it. And then we need to ask and pray for the courage to act.